0: Uh, my name is Steve Thomas. I'm honored to be here. And um, I know it's traditional to say I bring you greetings from the church wherever. I live in Iowa, which is is not quite the edge of the world, but you can see the edge of the world from where we live if you just sit on the rooftop. But uh, it's a very little, tiny town, and uh, but a growing, thriving uh, church and community. We love when we get to visit Prague, and one of the reasons we love it is because it means I I do the scheduling for our travel, and I always make sure that we're here on Sunday because we love to worship with you at ICP, and I consider it a tremendous privilege to have been uh, asked uh, to share a message this morning with you, so thank you for that. Uh, I I am looking forward on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evenings at the library. I'll be doing a three-night lecture on uh, essentially five things that ruin any relationship and what do you do instead. So it won't just be, here, find the relationship you'd like to ruin, and I'll teach you how to do that. It's much more. (laughs) These are five common uh, behavioral habits that can ruin a relationship. And I. so, please, uh, I'd love for you to join us. You can talk to Jim or Lori. Uh, Please don't ask me how to direct you there. I have not a clue. I know you get on a bus and then a tram and then who knows after that. Well, uh, if you're from America and you lived in America in the 1990s, you will remember uh, what we thought was a more or less permanent institution called Blockbuster. Anybody remember Blockbuster? Uh, only a few. That was so twentieth century. Uh, now th- I don't think Blockbusters are open anywhere. But back in the day, my wife Debbie brought home. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't. It was actually during the era of DVD, so it wasn't like that old, but back in the day, she brought home a movie, and she said, you should watch this. Our middle daughter and she were going to have a movie night, and I thought, oh, gosh, I just have a very low uh, to- threshold of tolerance for chick flicks, right? Please don't make me do that. Don't don't make me watch a chick flick, and please don't make me go to a fabric store. Those, those kinds of things. So... They watched it, and I didn't. I found some other way to occupy myself. And after they had watched it, Debbie came to me, and she said, all I want is for you to watch this one piece. And when somebody as wonderful and beautiful as my wife Debbie asks you to do something, you do it, especially if you're the husband. And so I did. And honestly, I have not yet recovered from that little piece. I want to show you the scene. It's not going to work. Oh, thank you, Microsoft. (laughs) Well, I can tell you about it, but not nearly as well. This is not uh, some few years ago. the musical version of this movie. The title of the movie is Les Miserables. And uh, the musical version came out and it was very. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, here we go. You'll have to read their lips. Oh, he's on the case. that's okay (laughs) i know i didn't know that at the time that's a very astute comment oh here we go
1: You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget
0: If you have the opportunity, you should click it up somehow on the Internet and watch it all the way through. Victor Hugo is a master storyteller. Uh, He was a French poet and uh, author, novelist, and he may have been the most influential poet and novelist of his day in the 19th century. He burst on the scene, became very famous with his novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Yet. This is true in America, I don't know what it would be here, but in America, the book that he authored that has endured even more uh, than The Hunchback is Les Miserables, Uh, became a huge Broadway uh, musical. Then they made a nice attempt at a movie version of the Broadway musical, but it loses its impact and the story is told best, I think, in this movie. Although Victor Hugo lived his life very far outside of God's design, he hits the nail squarely on the head in Les Miserables for what I think is the most important theological truth in all of the world and thought. Jean Valjean was a criminal. He had been arrested and sent to prison for the horrible crime of stealing bread. While in prison, he was forced into hard labor, and when he was released, he had no skills, no family, no one and nothing to go back to, and so he lived by his wits. And he showed up at the priest's home, Uh, then the priest invited him in, gave him refuge, a warm place and dry place to sleep, a warm meal, and for that kindness, John Valjean cold cop cocked him, took the silver, and escaped into the night. The one sentence that wrecked me was that last sentence in the clip that we just watched, and it wrecks me every time I see it. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. That is the gospel in a sentence. Jesus bought us back from fear and hatred, to give us back to God. So but before you get the idea that this message is really uh, the text of my message is a Victor Hugo novel, I I want us to go to Scripture. Did anyone here as a child ever participate in sword drills? Does anybody register what that is? Uh, Some of us grew up in churches where, as young people, uh, the leader would... Uh, shout out a reference in the Bible, and the first one to find it in their Bible and stand up and read it was because the Bible is referred to as the sword, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. So, sword drill. Never mind, it's not that important. Uh, this will feel like a sword drill uh, because we're going to look at a whole bunch of places, but I think the Scriptures will all be on the screen. First stop, Romans 1-7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.3 Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1.2 Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.3 Grace and uh, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1-2, grace and peace to you. For you, you get the idea. It goes on and on and on. I'm going to uh, just jump down to Colossians 1-2. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1-1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Th- Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Second Thessalonians one two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus one four, to Titus my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus uh, Christ, Jesus our Lord, our Savior. Uh, Philippians or Philemon one three, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not done. First Peter. 1, 2, to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Revelation 1, 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne. So I think you probably can already tell I'm going to zero in on three simple words, grace and peace. These, uh, that phrase, those three words, appear this way 14 times in the New Testament. The only two of Paul's uh, epistles, his letters, that don't have grace and peace as a greeting, are 1 and 2 Timothy. And in in those two letters, he adds mercy to the equation, grace, mercy, and peace. So that when you read in the New Testament and you see this short phrase, grace and peace, you can be 80% sure it was the Apostle Paul who wrote that. And because this two-word Three-word salutation appears so often in the Scriptures, it would be pretty easy to just bounce past those. Right, grace and peace, got it. I've seen it more than a dozen times. Yeah, got it. But today, I'd like to drill down into those two words. So for this talk, if there's anyone here that is OCD, you're going to like what we're going to do because I am obsessed with those three words, grace and peace. We're going to talk about them. The first word, grace. I talk about grace a lot, and I don't think I talk about it enough. It's my favorite concept in the entire world. It's certainly my favorite theological concept, but even when you take it out of the context of the church and theology, I still think it is perhaps the most powerful idea in all of thought. I don't pull it off often enough, but my dream is that grace will be the theme of my entire life. I grew up in a church where grace was not the theme. I only half-jokingly tell people I grew up in a narrow-minded, small, pure, pharisaical Protestant church where they talked almost never about grace. I, and I'm pretty sure I didn't miss the one Sunday that they did because I was a preacher's kid. And the rule at my house was if you don't have a fever of more than 105 and you're not bleeding from some important organ, you are in church. So I was in church every Sunday and I never heard it. What I did hear was OBEY, all caps, as big as you can put it on the screen, although we didn't have screens in those days. The old song, Trust and Obey, some of you probably recall that from if you grew up in the church, that could have been their theme song. However, they would have interpreted it as trust, whatever, obey, that's the deal. That's the mission. That's the commission. And the assumption was, every week, that all of us will have not obeyed. We will all be guilty. And so someone had to spank us for this previous week's disobedience. And no good sermon, no sermon was good unless you felt spanked. I can tell a scattering of you know what I'm talking about. You can give me any kind of psychological test or exam and discover the deepest wounds that I have because of all this. And frankly, I feel better just having emoted. Uh, to you about it. So, you've just saved me about 120 American dollars per 45 minutes. There was this one good thing that came from it though. I when I learned of grace against the backdrop of what I now believe was essentially a graceless upbringing, I fell head over heels in love with grace. When I discovered grace, It seemed too good to be true. But eventually, I came to believe that it was a bedrock of my entire system of belief. I was transformed by the verses that we had read to us from Ephesians chapter 2. It is, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift from God so that no one can boast. I... I love that. And then it is followed on by, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. That word, workmanship, is a very interesting word. In the Greek, the word is poema. If you're an English speaker, what word did we anglicize that to? Poema. This is not really a for-credit quiz! So you don't have to be afraid. You can say it. What was the word? Poem. Interesting. You, I, we are God's poem. And frankly, for myself and a few others in the room, not all the lines rhyme yet. The meter is a little jerky still. And yet we are his workmanship not just workmanship, on the lines of his masterpiece. We have a a store in the States called Walmart. Are you familiar with this? It it is where you buy cheap stuff that won't last very long, but you didn't have to pay much for it. When Paul used the word "poema," we are his workmanship. He didn't have a Walmart vase in mind. He had a fine crystal vase, workmanship, a product of craftsmanship. That's the idea. We are His craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That transformed me. It When it finally made its way from my head to my heart, it's not like obedience went away. What it is, though, is that I learned to obey God for an entirely different reason, out of entirely different motivation. Here's my favorite way to describe grace. It's with a very fictional story, and uh, I don't know how to frame it up in um, Czech life, so I'm going to use American life and you can make the connections, Uh, fictional story. I have stayed late at my office counseling until about five minutes until seven. Well my favorite American TV show, NCIS, is on at seven. I want to get home and enjoy that with my wife, Debbie. The issue is, though, I live ten minutes away from my church office, and so I figure I can just... I. I could probably shave a couple of minutes off of that by speeding. So I'm on the highway, Highway 20, doing 75 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour speed zone and I get to the exit to take our little county road to the tiny little speck of a town we live in and I see the lights of the state trooper in my rear view mirror. I pull over, he comes to the window and he ask me for my driver's license and registration. I produce my license and dig around in my glove box until I can find my registration and hand it to him. And he says, Mr. Thomas, you are doing 75 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour speed zone. I'm going to have to give you a ticket. So he writes the ticket in his book. He hands me the book for me to sign he takes the book back, rips the ticket off, and hands it to me, and he says, you have 30 days to pay your fine. I fold it up, and I put it in my pocket, and I creep away at about 30 miles an hour. That is justice, getting what I deserve. I sped. I deserve a ticket. Same story, only different. Driving too fast, get pulled over, ask for my license and registration. I give it to him, and he looks it over, and he says, Mr. Thomas, you were doing 75 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour speed zone, but you know what? I just had a nice dinner with some of my comrades. I'm full and happy. It's been a gorgeous and beautiful day. I'm only going to give you a warning. Just keep your speed to the limit. I drive away with this huge smile on my face, that's mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. I deserved a ticket. But His mercy took care of that. Same story, third kind of evolution of it. I'm driving too fast, I get pulled over, driver's license, registration, give it to him, he Writes the ticket telling me you sped, you were at 75 in a 65 mile an hour speed zone. He hands me the ticket book, I sign it, he takes it back, he tears the ticket off, folds it up, and puts it in his pocket and says, Mr. Thomas, I'll pay your fine. And that, my friends, is grace, getting what I could not deserve. Justice getting what I deserve, mercy, not getting what I deserve, and grace, getting what I could never deserve. The New Testament was written in Greek, as I'm sure you probably know, and in Greek the word here for grace is charis. And assuming somebody's curious, here's what it looks like in Greek. It's all Greek to me. The literal meaning of charis is gift, but like many Greek words that have a, a, a rich uh, kind of uh, rainbow <coughs> of definitions and meanings, charis does not just mean gift, it's, it's bigger than that. It carries a flavor of something lovely and delightful, charming, pleasing. It's a very rich word. When the New Testament writers use it, they always, nearly always, use it in reference to God's character and His love toward us, toward humankind. They use it in its divine sense. So grace assumes two things. It first of all assumes the need of the recipient, right? The second is the sufficiency of the provider the giver. In other words, uh, if you don't need grace, you don't need grace. If there's no need, there will be no grace. But when there is a need, there has to be someone who's sufficient to provide for that need. That's pretty important. It's given to those who need it but who cannot earn it, produce it, or deserve it in any particular way. And it's out of the resources of the giver. Grace, I'm sure you've heard if you've been around the church for any length of time, is unmerited favor. And I think that's that's a good definition for it. It is God's favor that we couldn't earn or deserve. In fact, if you can earn it or deserve it, it can't be grace. It's something, but it's just not grace. And it may not even be bad, but it can't be grace because grace can't be earned. It, it can't be deserved. So that's grace. Now, here's peace. This is a, a word that was often used by the Jews. In fact, it was the most common way to greet one another and to uh, a salutation to leave. So it's a little bit like aloha in Hawaii, if you've ever been. Aloha could mean hello or it could mean goodbye. Shalom, which is peace in Hawaii. A Hebrew could mean hello and goodbye when it's time to go. And I know you probably wonder, what does that look like in the Hebrew? And there you are. Like Karish, uh, shalom has a, a, a very rich meaning. It means peace, but it means peace in a much bigger way than the English word for peace is generally used. In English, in American English which I understand is not real English. Uh, Peace is merely the absence... Yes, I said it for your benefit. (laughs) Peace is merely the absence of conflict or the cessation of conflict as the end of war equals peace. We celebrate 100 years ago today on 1111, the 11th minute of the 11th hour the treaty was signed. It was a wonderful thing, but it was it was touted to be the war to end all wars. Not quite. In in Hebrew, shalom means completeness, wholeness. It means the deepest, most abiding well-being. It's it means perfection, tranquility, prosperity, security means circumstances unblemished by conflict or defect of any kind. It, it, it's the finest thing you could hope for yourself or anyone you loved. It's In fact, in its finest form, it was a gift from God. A lot of Bible scholars believe that Paul and Peter and John, who used grace and peace as their greeting, did this to combine a, a fairly standard... Greek or Gentile greeting with a very standard Hebrew greeting, and it does, but I think there's much more to it. And so I'd like for us to think about what might be there, because I think these two words together explain for us redemption. What is the most treasured commodity in all the world? Is it gold? Not no. <laughs> it's not silver. It's not even uranium or platinum. What what is the most costly, compelling, most powerful treasure in all the world? In my opinion, it's peace. Every individual, even those who can't quite articulate it, is looking for peace. It's what everybody dreams about and longs for, whether they can say so or not. It's what every heart desperately desires. And for some of us, it's the thing that drives us. However, although we want to feel peace, we often do things that get us the opposite. You notice that? We, We want peace with the people in our lives, we want peace in the world around us, we want peace with ourselves, making peace with our past, and ultimately we want peace with God. And we do the nuttiest things to try to get peace. We drink and we drug and we cycle through relationships and we chase down records and quotas and we do and say things that we think other people want to hear us do and say in order to somehow go up in their estimate, and no matter what happens, these are not things that we really want. They're not things in our heart of hearts, but we do them. We morph and bend and change in order, like a chameleon, hoping that we'll find acceptance, and thinking in that acceptance we'll find peace. Popularity can't do it for us. I say this as one in full-on Recovery from the addiction to being liked. My shadow mission in life, I've discovered, is I want everybody to like me. I always have wanted to sit at the cool kids' table, and I don't seem to have outgrown it. I'm sure I'm the only one here that's that way, but achievement can't get us this peace we're after. Money can't do it. It can't be earned, it can't be bought. But there's a price tag for this, and the price tag is beyond anyone's ability to pay. See, the price tag for our peace was the death of the perfect, sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, the perfect for the imperfect. C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. Actually... I know this is awful, but when I die and go to heaven, I think I will seek out C.S. Lewis before the Apostle Paul. I love his uh, writings and have benefited so much. But anyway, Lewis calls this the deep magic. There is something mystical, something unexplainable about the transaction of the cross. And when Jesus said, it is finished, what He was saying is, I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Jesus purchased our peace at the cost of His own blood. And He didn't wait for us to get good enough. He didn't wait for us to be in a position to pay Him back. He didn't even set up a payment plan. He just did it knowing we would never be able to repay. Remember the aspect of grace that I talked about where the, those two things, the need of the recipient, the sufficiency of the giver? There you go. Grace and peace. That's the gospel. And then there's something that I have discovered about this whole grace and peace dynamic. That is where I basically want to land the plane today. Wherever grace shows up, peace will show up too. So that grace and peace is very nearly a formula for life that works, as well as a restatement of redemption and the plan of God. For most people, when they lack peace... They go to one of two extremes. Either they push harder to get what they want, or they just quit. They give up. Those are two extremes. When you push harder, you become a bully. When you give up, you become a victim. Those two things neither work very well. And yet people are locked into those styles of living. I think there's a better way. And what I think the better way is, is leveraging the fact that grace brings peace. So here's, here's the deal. When you feel your peace is disrupted, when you do not feel at peace, more effort will not get you what you want. Laying down and le- letting the trolley roll across you, that won't do it either, right? There's something in the middle. It, getting in touch with grace in some form or another, will get us what we want. Because when grace shows up, peace always follows. And I want you to think about the ways you can get in touch with grace this morning. Uh, uh, American author Gary Thomas wrote a very interesting book entitled Sacred Pathways. In that book, he talks about nine ways that people connect with God. Now, they're not the only ways that people connect with God, but Gary Thomas does a very good job of getting a person uh, to consider how they connect with God and how they express their love for him. For some, it's nature. I uh, I am a person who loves the beauty of nature. Nature Reminds me of God's majesty. It reminds me that there's a context of beauty in the world. There's a context of a world that is so much bigger than me and my problems of the moment. I'm an avid golfer. I'm horrible at it, but I love to play. What is that about? Right? Uh, If there is a golfer here, you understand my addiction. But if you're not a golfer, I'm just weird. And frankly, I am weird. But one of the reasons I love golf is because of the setting of golf. Even a pretty poor golf course has some pretty places on it. It's just beautiful, and I love that. I I think hikers find this renovation of their soul sometimes in hiking. Me, I just sweat and feel tired afterwards. So, in fact, the research has confirmed over and over again now in in this last decade that just the act of leaving your house and being out in the open air is good for you on every level, emotionally, psychologically, physically, I would even say spiritually. For some people, it's music. I love music. And I have just enough education and background to appreciate good and complex music. And frankly, one of the reasons we love coming here when we can to worship with you is I've yet to hear a really crummy song set at ICP. It's, it's been good. It was this morning. Where is she? Thank you. And thank you to the team. Bad music, not so graceful, but good music. And I've turned a corner in my life even good country music can help me sometimes. I never thought that would happen. <laughs> well, my the folks that I work with back in Iowa, they sometimes they think, "Golly, we walk by our senior pastor's office and he's playing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. What's that about?" I'm sorry, it's good music. I I can actually connect with God through Queen. I'm a sick individual. I don't know enough about art to be able to appreciate it beyond, wow, that's pretty, or what in the world is that about? But good art, I've been to a few wonderful art galleries, and good art, it draws me into beauty. Relationships work for other people. One of my really good friends is traveling with us. He is renewed by relationships. I ride the bus to get from point A to point B. Michael rides the bus because there are people on it, and that's good. I have a lot of friends, and I have even more acquaintances, but I have three or four people that I put in the shoebox of grace people. And when I am with them, they remind me that I am treasured by God and by them, that I don't have to perform for them and when I leave their presence, there's more of me. It always brings me a measure of peace. One that is so obvious that it would be easy to leave off this big long list is the Bible itself. God's grace is all over the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. I have to be honest, it's a little harder for me to see in Leviticus, but I am pretty sure it's got to be there somewhere. I, I, it's just I try to I try to read through the Bible every year, and so far this is my thirtieth time, and so far Leviticus has never really drawn me in. So that probably explains the queen thing. But Psalms, Psalms is the hymnal of God's people, and to me it's a hymnal of grace. I love it. I listen for God's voice when I read Scripture, and I encounter His grace in Scripture. And guess what happens when you encounter grace? What is the byproduct? Peace. Peace. And for me, I've also discovered that my memories of grace moments are renewing and can connect me in a powerful way with God's grace. I'm not sure everybody's wired this way. I love to journal. I try to journal every day. (laughs) I read a comment by uh, an author in America, and she said, come on, journaling? Jesus didn't journal. Oh, I guess he didn't. But for me, journaling is really good because it helps me identify those grace moments so that I can travel back in my memory and revisit them. Uh, the, probably the most vivid grace moment I will ever have experienced was the moment on May 31st in 1974 at the Boulevard Christian Church in Muskogee, Oklahoma. I looked back at the back, and there was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my entire life escorted by her father who I had met that night before. Gulp. I loved it. It was all about grace. I only half-jokingly tell people I married far, far above my pay grade, and I certainly did because of God's grace. And then there were three other moments when I watched all three of our daughters born and delivered into the world. Took my breath away. Almost made me faint. Then there was that time years ago when my mother came into my church office and she gave me this little book that is really a child's book on one level. It's called I'll Love You Forever. And it tells the story of a little boy who is in his mother's arms and doing all the things that little boys do. And the mother says, I'll love you forever. I'll love you forever until toward the end of the book, the mother ages and now she is in the little boy's lap. I'll love you forever. And then we lived that story as Alzheimer's took her away a little bit of time, day after day. I have hundreds of memories of grace moments in my footlocker. You do too. You have your own footlocker of memories of grace moments. And I just want to say, pull out the footlocker and go through it. When you reconnect with grace, peace will follow. It just will. But there was a chance of somebody here today who needs to encounter the grace of Christ so that they can experience the peace that He brings, you have never been to the cross. There's a chance that somebody here has been trying to broker their own peace on their own terms and it's not working. Today could be your day to say yes to the grace of God and to find the peace that has compelled you that you never even believed existed today could be your day dear jesus say i've ransomed you back from fear and hatred and now i give you back to god let's pray we stand in awe because of your grace Thank you, Jesus. And in moments, we'll celebrate what is for us the commemoration of that moment when grace became available to all of us. As Jesus gave his life, poured out his blood, his body was torn as payment for our peace, Would You, Heavenly Father, by Your Spirit, remind us of Your grace. Don't let us be so busy with our lives and our commitments and our families and all of the obligations that we have that we just bust past times when You poured out grace and we were too busy to notice. We were in too big of a rush to to see when You had poured out grace for us, remind us that In some ways, life is all about moments of grace applied into our moments of conflict and tension and stress and even terror. We thank you for this in advance because we know we can trust you, that wherever your grace shows up, your peace is close behind. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me share today.